in the room. We have some people watching online this morning. We're thankful uh, that all of you are here today, however you are here. And um, I want to just <clears throat> also mention uh, um, just a note about our time in worship this morning. I don't know if, if this has uh, been a thought that anybody else has had, but you know, we, we made a commitment at the end of last year, really, to say the Lord's Prayer together every Sunday. And, uh, and it just hit me this morning as we were saying that together a few minutes ago, uh, what a, an anchoring um, moment that is, I guess, for me every week when we do that together. I hope that after a half a year of doing that together, of participating in that practice together, uh, that that's been a meaningful, life-giving thing for you as well. And um, and so so thankful to have some time to share uh, in worship together and share in communion around the Lord's table, uh, anticipating that feast for which we wait uh, to, to eat with the Lord one day. And so it's good to be back together to get, uh, this week. I'm thankful you're here. I want to just mention a couple of things really quickly as we get started in our time uh, in, in our sermon. First of all, please be in prayer uh, this week. We have a group, uh, a good-sized group of adults and students that are going to church camp, Camp 51. They're leaving at 2 o'clock this afternoon. And so I want to ask you to be in prayer for them this week, that God will work uh, in the hearts and lives of everybody who is going to be a part of, of Camp 51, both students and adults. Uh, we, we do Camp 51 with a bunch of other churches, and I think there's well over 200 students that are going to be there this week. It's always a great week. I usually go, and I'm not getting to go this week, so I'm, I'm kind of bummed about that, but I'm excited to hear about how God uh, shows up and want you to be praying about that. Uh, this week. Also, uh, at the be- I want to mention that at the beginning of the summer, uh, we, we let you know that after worship from like the beginning of June through today, uh, we were going to be doing something a little different uh, in our, in our cl- adult class spaces. Uh, we're still having classes for kids and for teens, uh, but in our adult class spaces, we were doing what we've been calling prayer labs and these prayer labs have, have been designed to just create some space for prayer, really. Uh, and so there are three different prayer labs, and I want to remind you about those. If you've not been a part of one of those prior to today, I want to encourage you to go, to stick around and go and be a part of one of those. Uh, today's the last day we're going to do those. And there's three different prayer labs that you can participate in. A contemplative prayer lab, which is uh, practicing silence and uh, sitting in the presence of God and hearing from God. A dwelling in the Word prayer lab, which is, uh, uses Scripture to kind of pray and to think about uh, how God might be speaking to us and we might be able to listen to God through God's Word. And then an intercessory prayer lab, which is uh, just a time to pray, uh, like you might think of gathering with people to pray. And so those three ga- uh, gatherings are happening after worship this morning along with classes for kids and teens. And so I want you to stick around and be a part of that. It's been encouraging to hear the ways that those have been meaningful and an encouragement to uh, a number of you as you've been able to be a part of that. So today's the last day for that. Then, starting next Sunday, we're actually taking a Sabbath, a rest, a break from classes. And we will just have worship from next Sunday through back to school Sunday on August the 13th. So we've been, we'll, we'll be talking more about that, reminding you about that, but just be aware of that. So starting next Sunday, we'll just have worship for about a month, and we're doing that really just to give our teachers uh, a break. We have a lot of regular teachers, and uh, we know summer's a busy time already with people traveling in and out, so we're taking a, a break from classes for about a month. So just be aware of that. Now, today, that's all the uh, commercials that I have. Today, we're continuing... Uh, in our sermon series, Flannel Graph Favorites, 
Uh, And in this series, we've been taking a look at Old Testament stories in the Bible. We've been uh, looking back at some stories that are familiar to a lot of us. This has been a really fun, meaningful series for me personally to preach. It's been a challenging series to preach, quite honestly. Uh, The title of this series, Flannel Graph Favorites, sort of references this time in the past uh, when the Bible was taught mostly to children, if not entirely to children, using the latest cutting-edge technology of the time, the flannel graph board, which we have two of behind me here. Uh, And if this is your first Sunday here, and this is, I think, week five in this series, if this is your first Sunday here in this series and you're not familiar with what a flannel graph board is, rest easy, that's okay. Uh, It's simply a fabric-covered board that you take these really cool felt cutouts and you can stick to the board and back in the time when it was really in its you know its peak height of interest and, and usage uh, this was used to help teach children the Bible and help bring the Bible to life in some fresh ways for kids and so and I want to just say again I feel like I need to say it every week and maybe I do because if you've not been here you might think well is Doug sort of taking a little a little bit of a jab at the flannel graph board it's really not about that I want to be sure to acknowledge the women and men but mostly women uh, who have taught children the Bible for decades I know in my own life I think about women like Miss Ann and Miss Frida and Miss Debbie I think about Miss Alita which some of who some of you know Miss Sue and Miss Anna. These are just a few of the women that I recall from my childhood who I know taught me the Bible and gave me some sense about what God was doing in Scripture as much as I was able to understand. And I'm so thankful for those teachers that taught me the stories in the earliest years of my life when my parents were dragging me to church and my faith journey was just beginning and I didn't always understand why I was there or what I was learning, but I knew that these stories were really important to the people who were teaching them to me. And, the, and so many people, a lot of us have that story. If you grew up in church, you have that story, right? That you know that you learn these stories and there have been people who have poured into you, who have given their time and their life to make sure that you could understand the Bible. And if you, if you didn't grow up in church, that's also okay, right? That maybe you've never heard some of the stories we're talking about this summer. And in some ways, you might be at a greater advantage because we're trying this summer to take a little different look at these stories. Because what happens is if you learn the stories as a child, We recognize that a lot of times, right, there's more to the story than what you can teach a child. If if you've ever picked up a children's Bible and you've just read it or you've, you've seen it or you've read it to your children, you know that children's Bibles just sort of scratch the surface with what these stories are really about and what's really going on. There's a simplicity to the way that we tell the Bible to children. There's a simplicity to the flannel graph version. And the challenge is that if we keep the flannel graph version of the story in our mind and let it be the dominant story that we understand as we look at a lot of these Old Testament stories, we miss out on some things as we grow up, right? We understand that when we teach the Bible to children, we have to soften the edges. We can't tell them the whole story because in many cases, the Bible would be just quite honestly too heavy for a child to comprehend as they grow in their faith and as they learn about God and who God is because the Bible is a complex book. And and this series really is just trying to acknowledge that the Bible is a complex book and that I, I want us to be a church that acknowledges that the Bible is a complex, really a library of books, right? And that there are there are things that happen 
as you get older and you start to read or you start to hear a podcast or a sermon or a preacher talk about something in Scripture, new questions emerge that the flannel graph version of the story that you might have learned don't answer. Right? And this, again, may not be your experience with the Bible, but I promise you in my life and ministry and my relationships with people, I talk to people all the time, all the time, for whom the Bible has been a hurdle. It's a challenging book, and so they don't understand things about it. Why does this happen? What was God doing here? What in the world is this story about? Right? These are questions that emerge as you read the Bible. And the more you read it, you, you can't deny the fact that there is a lot of death and a lot of violence. There's some stuff that's confusing and hard to understand at times, and there are times where you read it and it leaves you sort of scratching your head, not really sure exactly what's going on. So that's why this series is so important, because we need to continue to come back to the Bible. We need to continue to return as we get older, and we need to continue to study. We don't need to just give up and assume that we understood it back on the flannel graph days when we might have learned it, or if you didn't learn it growing up in church, you don't need to stop us with the assumption that you know whatever sort of thing that you might have heard or learned at some point in the past, that that's all there, there is to know, because there's always more to discover and always more to know, and we need to continue to read and reread and give an honest rereading. Here's the way I want to say it, just kind of simplify what I've been trying to say. As we grow, the way we read the Bible must grow with us, right? As we grow, the way we read the Bible must grow with us. We can't continue to hold on to our flannel graph version of these Bible stories because there is always more to discover. And that's sort of just a summary of what this series is about, and we're taking a look at different stories in the Old Testament. Today, we're going to cover a lot of ground, and I'm going to talk fast and try to get it all in in an amount of time that, we'll, that we have. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible. Exodus chapter 1 is where we're going to start. We're going to end in Exodus chapter 3. The story we're going to talk about is really launching into the entire book of Exodus, so if it piques your interest... You might just read the whole book this week of the book of Exodus. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot going on, a lot of ground to cover, and I can't do it all. So I encourage you, if, if, if something that's uh, said today sort of in, you know, intrigues you, interests you, please go back and read it more deeply on your own, and then let's go have coffee or lunch if you want to talk more about that. So if you've been tracking with this series, you know that we're jumping ahead uh, quite a bit in the biblical narrative. The first three sermons, uh, four sermons in this uh, in this series, we're all in the book of Genesis, the story of, uh, I guess it's three sermons, the story of Noah and the flood, the story of the Tower of Babel, and then last week, Chris preached on a really difficult story, the story of Abraham and Sarah, of Hagar and Ishmael, uh, and I want to thank Chris for doing that, and so we're going to, those were all the stories we're going to talk about in the book of Genesis, we're going to jump ahead to the book of Exodus, and our story today, I have to do a little bit of kind of catch-up because our story happens and picks up in Exodus chapter 1 well after the story that Chris looked at last week. In that story, just to remind you, Abraham was promised that he would be the patriarch of an, a great nation, that God tells Abraham, your descendants, your people will be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. But after that, after God tells Abraham this, the family begins to go, things begin to roll. Things are put in motion. After that, there is a guy named Joseph who is Abraham's great-grandson. 
He lives this wild and wacky life, this through, lives through this series of events. He's thrown into a pit by his brothers, sold into slavery by his brothers, wrongly accused of a crime later on in his life, unjustly serves prison time for years and years and years. But eventually, through another wild series of events, and I'm like fast-forwarding through this story, Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And at that time, Egypt was the most powerful nation on the planet. And God gave Joseph insight in this role that he had as the, the, the prime minister of Egypt. He gave him insight about a famine that was coming, a famine that would decimate the nation of Egypt if action wasn't taken. And so Joseph takes action. And with this insight that God gives him, Joseph is able to help prepare the Egyptian people to be prepared for the famine by storing grain uh, and supplies so that they don't die off without food. And things went along pretty well for a while. Egypt survives the famine. Joseph thrives in his role as the second most powerful leader in Egypt. His brothers and their families eventually would even come to live with him. And things are rolling. All that's the end of Genesis, the end of the book of Genesis. And things are rolling along pretty well, but then some more time passed. And eventually Joseph, this great leader, dies off as well. And all his generation dies. But the interesting thing is, while Joseph was there, because of the famine, all of his brothers and their families had come to live with Joseph, and they, they all began having kids. So all of, even, even though Joseph died, right, this is what happens. Somebody in your family moves to some place, you move with them, and then before long, you're like, I'm from Kaufman. I don't even know how we got here, right? And so Joseph lives there, he dies, all his descendants have now lived there, and they stay after he dies. The trick is, though, that his descendants have multiplied, and they are this massive, massive group of people. And so his descendants are in Egypt, and they're known as the Israelites, which was, they were named after Joseph's father. And so the Israelites stay there in Egypt, they begin to grow into this large group. When Joseph was alive, he was respected, but there's this moment that happens at the beginning of Exodus chapter 1 when the memory of Joseph begins to fade, and the Israelite population has increased, and so things have changed. This is how the story goes, picking up in Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. It says, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all of that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. This is in Egypt. The land of Egypt was filled with these Israelites. Then a new king, who, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. I want to stop there for just a second. So what we're seeing is that enough time has now passed, enough transitions of power have taken place in Egypt that the king of Egypt doesn't remember Joseph anymore. Doesn't remember that Joseph just a few, you know, a little while before had been responsible for saving the entire nation of Egypt from a famine. All he knows, all this new king of Egypt knows, is that there are all these people, all these Israelites that are living in his land. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, does not like it, and he is growing concerned. So this is what happens next in verse 9, picking up in verse 9. Look, the king of Egypt said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. 
come. We must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Again, I'm going to stop for just a second. We hear, it begin, you begin to hear in these words, Pharaoh is paranoid. Pharaoh is afraid, right? He doesn't like having all of Joseph's descendants in the country. He's concerned that this immigrant population is getting out of control and the most powerful person on the planet is thinking that may, he might be losing control of his nation. And he's convinced that if war breaks out, the Israelites will join the enemy and will fight against Egypt. Though I want you to notice there's not necessarily anything in the story right now that suggests that that's going to happen. Pharaoh is paranoid. And so he's worried about this, right? That in his, and in his fear, he comes up with this plan. He visits with his advisors. He gets his cabinet members together. And they come up with a plan to try and control these Israelites that have grown too, too large for Pharaoh's comfort, to try to control these immigrants that have grown too large for Pharaoh's comfort. I want to pick the story up beginning in verse 11. This is what it says next. This is what they decide. So they put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. They built two cities, they built two entire cities. But the more they were oppressed, I love this, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. I don't like that they did that. I like that oppression happens and as a result, they multiply more, right? Pharaoh thinks he's doing one thing and another thing happens. This is the backstory. These, these few verses that I've read in the beginning of Exodus chapter 1 are the backstory to how Israel becomes slaves in Egypt in the first place. They would be slaves in Egypt for more than 400 years. But this is how it started. It started because the king of Egypt reacted in his fear and set it in motion. But it doesn't slow things down, right? You see that. The things just, they just keep growing in number. He oppresses them and they create life. He tries to create death and they create life. His plan is to control this immigrant population by making them slaves and it isn't working. His plan is not working. So he concocts a new plan which we read about beginning in verse 15. This is what he decides to do next. The king of Egypt then says to the Hebrew midwives, these women who are helping deliver Israelite children into the world, he says to these Hebrew midwives whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. That's a little Bible humor that you might just read kind of quickly, but they're like they're kind of like jabbing Pharaoh a little bit, which is kind of a funny response. So this is what it says next. The writer of Exodus tells us, So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. 
Now, I want you to hear, as we hear these words, the, the panic and the fear in Pharaoh's words. Pharaoh has lost it at this point. I, I preached a, an entire sermon on Shipra and Pua, these Hebrew midwives, not too many years ago. And so I'm not going to spend as much time as I would like to. But I, I want to just acknowledge this is the part of the story that really leads us to what we're going to talk about next. Pharaoh's lost it. And he's bothered by this growing group. that has, And so he's resorted to killing the babies, which I think is part of the reason we don't tell this story in all of its detail in the flannel graph version, because that's a that's you know telling that class in the three that story in the three year old class might be a little bit traumatic for our children, right? And so, but in step these two midwives, Shipra and Pua, and they do the thing that nobody expects. They defy the leader of the most powerful nation in the world. Here's how one writer, one commentator wrote about this story and explaining what they did. Listen to this. It says, Where powerful people are oppressing powerless people, the powerless are not obliged to tell the truth to their oppressors. Revering authorities should be a way of revering God, but when the authorities are requiring murder, all bets are off. People can pay with their lives for revering God rather than the authorities, but on this occasion, God honors that stance and encouragement to other people faced with their choice. And I agree. I agree with this perspective, right? When powerful people are oppressing powerless people, the powerless are not obliged to tell the truth to their oppressors. We honor God, not Pharaoh, might be another way to say that. We do what God wants, even when our political leaders tell us to do something otherwise that we think is in, con- in contradiction to what we think God wants us to do. I think, of th- I think of this, as what they did, as something like what a person uh, would have done in World War II, hiding, you know, choosing to hide a Jew in their home from Hitler, uh, and then when someone comes to search their home, not telling the truth about it, right? Uh, this is an example of powerless people and powerful people, and maybe to help you kind of think about what went on here. And this is just the first part of the first chapter of Exodus, right? At the very end of chapter 1, we learn that Pharaoh's attempts to kill the Israelites don't stop even with this crazy story. He gives an order that every Israelite boy that is born should be thrown into the Nile River. And that's when we, we get to the part of the story that I really want to kind of focus on this morning. In Exodus chapter 2, we meet a baby boy named Moses. And like Joseph, Moses has a wild story. His mom, whose, whose name we learn is Jochebed, puts him in a small boat. The word, maybe you've heard it taught as a basket. The word actually is boat. She makes a little boat. It's kind of a reference to the Noah story that we studied a few weeks ago. She puts him in a small boat to try and save him because like the Hebrew midwives, she isn't going to do what Pharaoh has commanded and ordered that be done. And so it works. She puts him in this little boat to try to save him, and it works. Moses is found by Pharaoh's daughter, who raises him in all places in the king's palace. This baby, put in a basket, will be found by the most powerful person on the planet's daughter, and she adopts him and raises him as her own son so that Moses would grow up in the Egyptian palace. So now we have two stories, a Joseph story and a Moses story, and both of these people end up in prominent positions in the Egyptian political world, right? Moses is in this really prominent place. But one day, after he's older, he's out working and, you know, walking around and noticing he's got 
he's an Israelite. He's grown up as an Egyptian, but he's out walking around and he's observing some of these Israelites who are slaves. And he sees an Egyptian soldier you know, beating one of the Israelites and he gets mad and takes it out on this Egyptian and kills the Egyptian. Which leads us to maybe the most, most significant, most well-known flannel graph story in Exodus, the story of Moses and the burning bush. And so we're going to skip chapter 2 and pick up in Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read a long section here to kind of give us this story. So here's what it says in Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses, again, he's run off, he's, he's, he's killed a man, and he's taken off for the wilderness. And it says this, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. So we know some time has passed. The pre, his father-in-law was the priest of Midian. And he led this whole flock, this whole flock of animals, to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people to the Israelites out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So Moses has grown up in Pharaoh's house. He's wandered off to the wilderness because he killed someone. He ran away in fear. And by the time we get to Exodus chapter 3, Moses is an adult. He's now married. He's working. He's had a job for his father-in-law as a shepherd. And one day while he's out tending sheep or cat, whatever he's tending, he sees this strange sight, this bush that doesn't burn up even though it's on fire. And so he goes over. Most of us would run. He goes over to check it out. And he's, then something even more strange happens. A voice comes from within the bush and speaks to him. And God tells him that he's been chosen to go and lead the enslaved people out of Egypt. 
It's a powerful story, arguably, again, the most, one of the most well-known flannel graph stories that we teach to kids, arguably one of the most important stories in the Old Testament as this moment really begins to set things in motion for the Israelites. And in so many of our retellings of this story, we focus on things like Moses and his life. We focus on the burning bush. We focus on the questions that Moses asks. And we focus on the conversation that God and Moses seem to have. We focus on the excuses that Moses makes, his hesitations. My very first sermon, the very first sermon that I ever preached when I was employed by a church was almost 21 years ago. It was actually over 21 years ago. And I brought the cassette tape. You cannot listen to it. You probably couldn't find a cassette tape player. I, it, it, I titled the sermon. It doesn't need to be heard or listened to by anybody because it was a terrible sermon. But I titled the sermon. I went back to no excuses. I literally focused on the thing that I just said that people tend to focus on. This my dad gave this to me before he passed away that he found in like a box that he had asked, you know, for it to be sent to him because he was really excited about listening to my first sermon. It does not need to be listened to. It was a terrible sermon. And, while, and so there are a lot of things that we focus on, right? There are a lot of ways that we retell the story. And, and while there are a lot of things that I could discuss with you and remind you about, the thing I want to remind you about is really the kind of the 30,000-foot view of what we're talking about in this series and the question that we're asking is not what we can learn about the stories in, these, in the Bible, but what can we learn about God from the stories, right? Because God is the point of each of these stories. God is the main character of each of the stories that we're looking at. We're interested in what we can learn about God and how we can learn what God is like. Because I'm convinced that that's really the reason that this, these stories exist. Because we remember, right, this is just the second book of the Bible. The second book of the Bible, and even though hundreds of years have passed since the beginning, the story of Israel is still young and fresh and new. And, and the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for a long time, and they still have more time to come. And they don't know God in the way that they'll come to know God, right? Moses doesn't even know God. He might have been born an Israelite, but he's been raised in an Egyptian palace. He doesn't know God the way that he'll come to know God. And so here he is meeting God. For the first time, getting reintroduced, you might say, to God, to the God of his fathers. And I want you to notice what he said. Did you notice in verse 7? Look at verse 7 again. He says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. This entire interaction that Moses has with God would have been totally foreign. You need to know that if someone, some ancient person would have read this story, this interaction that Moses has with God would have been totally foreign to the way, their understanding of the way that God's interacted with human beings. They would have understood that if you wanted to get the attention of the gods, lowercase g, gods, then you would have to do something to get their attention. You with me? You have to get their attention. You have to, you know, dance. You have to start a fire. You've got to do something, you know, something, shout loud, whatever it is you've got to do. You've got to do something to get their attention. But what happens here? God is trying to get Moses' attention. And God says some really important words. He says, I have seen the suffering of my people. I have heard their stories. I am concerned about their suffering. Those are verbs that tell us a lot of really important things about God. 
And this is what I think the writers of Exodus want us to know. That this God that you are learning about, Israel, this God that you are learning about today, is not like other gods. This God has come to you, has gotten, is doing things to get your attention, right? And this God hears you. This God sees your life. This God is concerned about your life. And this is an important word for us to hear today, to be reminded, right, that God sees you and God hears you and that God is concerned about you and that God knows you and wants to be known by you. God is paying attention. God is awake and aware of the things that are happening in our lives. God is aware of and awake to the things that are happening in our world. It doesn't mean for the Israelites, we should note, that the suffering is gone. It doesn't mean that if we struggle, you know, that the struggle won't last long. Again, it might, the struggle in our lives might last a long time. For them, again, they've been slaves for a while. They still have a ways to go. But what the story does reveal and what the writer wants us to know is that God is aware of the problems that we face. Amen? And that God is paying attention to you. Amen? And while this is good news, it's really good news that God sees and that God hears and that God is concerned, it actually gets better because God also says this in verse 11. I want to just look at it again. He says, <clears throat> he said, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, what? I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And then God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God doesn't just give, like doesn't just see us and hear us and express concern from a distance, Right? God comes near. God's commitment is to be with Moses. God's commitment is to be with the people of Israel. He says, I will be with you. And then, look, notice this, for the first time, this is the first moment in the Bible where God is introduced by name by God. Now, last week in the story that Chris preached, Hagar gives God a name, but this is the first moment where God gives God a name. God gives us a name here, I am who I am, or I am what I am. It could also be maybe translated. Later it will become Yahweh is the word that you have probably heard, right? And what a lot of, a lot, while a lot of things have been written about this name, I'm not going to talk about those today because the thing I want to focus on is the fact that God gives us a name at all. This is an incredibly important part of the story because, again, Moses doesn't know God and is coming to know who God is. Moses is one of Abraham's descendants, but by this point in the story, all of Abraham's descendants have basically forgotten who God is because they've been in Egypt, and they don't know God like Abraham knew God. And so God reintroduces God's self to Moses, right? And in the process reveals that God is, Yahweh is not like other gods. Because this is what we know about names. If you, if you don't want to be known by somebody, if a telemarketer calls you, right, and they say, we always know if they're trying to get in, if they say, is Lana there? I'm like, my wife's name is Lana. And so I know that, you know, if you say Lana, you don't know her, right? If that happens to you and you don't recognize the number, you don't know the name, you, you don't, you know, and, you, and they, they ask for you, what do you do? 
You hang up probably. Or if you're like really into suffering, I guess, you might endure the phone call for a little while, right? But, but you don't know this person and they don't know you. And if you wanted to know them, then you would give them your name and you would give them your information and you would talk to them in a conversation. We give our name to people when we introduce ourselves because it is a part of our identity. You with me? And so part of what's significant about this moment is that God reveals a name and that God says that I want you to know me. I want you to know who I am, and I want to identify myself to you. God wants to be known, and so God tells Moses his name, and Moses will tell it to Israel, and Israel will ultimately, although sort of in a kind of winding path, two steps forward, one step back, they will eventually tell it to the whole world, which is how we have come to this moment in history, and we know God's name today. And even though we have flown through the first three chapters of Exodus, and we've covered a lot of ground in a very short amount of time. When you read a story like this, the thing I, I think you notice, if you were just to read it, you know, in one sitting from the end of Genesis, chapter, you know, the end of the chapters in Genesis to the beginning of these Exodus chapters, if you, were to begin, if you were just to read it together like this, you would notice something really important. We've talked about it already this morning quite a bit. And you would notice that, that names play a really important role in the story, in the way the story is told. Do you remember where we started back in Exodus chapter 1? We learned the names of two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. You learned the names of Moses, and you learned the name of Moses' mother, Jochebed, in chapter 2. And then here in chapter 3, you learn the name of the main character of the story, Yahweh. Yahweh, I am who I am. I, I am who I am. But did you notice whose name is conspicuously absent in the story? Pharaoh's. We never learn this Pharaoh's name. It's like a little wink, a little nudge, a little nod from the writer of the story, reminding us that the name that matters the most is the main character's name, Yahweh. And just to kind of acknowledge that people matter too, ordinary people matter too, we also catch the names of people like Moses and his mother Jochebed and these random two obscure people, Shifra and Pua, who are a part of this story. The writer of the story wants us to know that the names that matter are not the names of Pharaoh or Egypt or any of these people who are not a part of Yahweh's people, but it's the name of God himself that matters the most. The God that hears the cries of his people. The God that sees their suffering. And the God that is actively working in the world for our good. Using ordinary people like you and like me. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the good news. Uh, that you are a God that sees us and that hears us and is concerned. And that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us, who has identified yourself to us. And I know this morning, God, that there are many in here who are experiencing a variety of things in life. Raising children and health and challenges with family and work and all the things that happen with marriage and with life. God, like we know that, there is just, that we've all brought stuff in to this room today. And I pray that this morning that there will be a word that we will be able to receive, that you are a God that sees us and hears us and cares, that's concerned, that has made yourself known, who has promised to be with us. 
to not leave us or forsake us or abandon us, but that you walk through life with us. And we hold to this. We cling to this. We are thankful for this promise. And we're thankful for the ways, God, that we see first in this story back in the beginning of of the Bible, in the beginning of Exodus, in the beginning of the Israelite people, that this is the way you've always been. You've always been a God who sees and who hears and is concerned. And even if people didn't always know it, we know it now. And we see it in the life of Jesus. We see it in his, his willingness to come and to be with us on earth, the way that he lived, the life that he gave us, and the way that he laid down his own life for our good. And we pray your blessing upon all of us today as we receive the good news from this story, the gospel from this story in Exodus chapters 1, 2, and 3. We are thankful, Father, that you are a God that knows us and that cares. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to sing a song and would love to invite